Well, good morning, Redemption. My name is Warren. I'm one of your pastors here. Glad to be with you as we continue on in our We Want a King series. Yes, praise Jesus. Amen. So one of the questions we're going to be dealing with this morning is before we dive into our passage is how far do you have to go until you experience the king's wrath? It's been a question asked over time as kings, presidents, different leaders of the such um, have responded to those who've wronged them, those who have been in rebellion towards them. It was one of the questions asked in the early 90s as Nelson Mandela was finally released after 27 years in prison. Mandela was in prison because he spent the early part of his life uh, fighting racial apartheid in South Africa. So his fighting resulted in him being in prison 27 years. That's longer than most of us have been alive, myself included. (laughs) Oh, you guys find that funny, huh? Okay. No, I wish. But the reality is 27 years of his life, right, taken from him unjustly. And so Mandela was released in the early 90s, and then, right, not only was he, not only to become a, a civilian or regular citizen, he would go on to become the president. And there were many at the time who were wondering, how is he going to respond? I mean, how do you respond against the people who have stole that many years from you? The good news of South Africa, Mandela didn't respond how people thought he would. Right? Instead of seeking revenge or retribution, he kind of did the exact opposite. He created what was known as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And part of what that commission did is it uh, sought Justice for the victims, but it also gave a pathway for those who had perpetrated oppression to be forgiven. It was amnesty available to those who had committed wrong over the 46 years that that system existed in this country. There's no question that Mandela was very maligned at the time around his decision making. People were wondering, hey, did you actually do the right thing? Did you let these people off the hook too soon? And maybe then they don't understand how bad their hurt was. They don't understand how wrong they've been because you've let them off the hook too easily. So that was one way we saw a leader respond, right? But the question was, did Mandela respond rightly? There have been many who've responded in different ways, who have sought the revenge, and it seems to have had its effect. How should a king or leader respond towards those who have clearly wronged them. It's what leads us into our passage this morning, because today we're looking at King David. And King David has the opportunity now to come face to face with those who have wronged him, those who have acted in rebellion towards his kingship and his leadership over the nation. And so today we'll see how David responds. And in David's response, we will see the heart of our father to those who have wronged him, those who have rejected him as king. And so that's where we're going today. But before we dive in, would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you, God, for another opportunity once again to be gathered up as your people, to hear from your word, uh, to receive um, truth, receive guidance, receive wisdom. God, let us never take it for granted how special Um, This moment is each week that we get to hear from your word, Lord, and to be further shaped um, into your image. And so help us, Lord, open our hearts now to receive your word today. In your name, amen. 
So we are going to be covering quite a deal of scripture today. So let's start off in 2 Samuel 19. We're going to go from verse 1 through 8, and it says this. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. For the whole army, that, the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into, that, into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, oh, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. And so the king got up, took his seat in the gateway. And when the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. And so the first thing we see is the king's heart is revealed. David, King David, his heart is broken for his rebel child. And so where we find David here in chapter 19, he's, at, he's in a place of mourning, he's in a place of sadness. And he's in a place of sadness because his son has died. Now, this son, Absalom, wasn't just an innocent character in all this. Absalom had actually risen up against David and was trying or even had somewhat succeeded in taking the throne from him. And so all of this, all this dysfunction that's happening in David's life and in his family, all of it came from, as consequences from what we heard last week from David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. There is dysfunction in the house of David. And so Absalom's rebellion is so successful that it actually sends David on the run. David's fleeing for his life again from as his son is pursuing him. And so it continues like that, and God continues with him. But eventually the tides turn, right? And David's army is able to get the upper hand, and then Absalom's the one on the run, right? On the run for his life as David's army is pursuing him. And as David sends his army out, he has a word of instruction for them. He says this. I know you got to, I, I know it's warfare. I get that. I totally understand that. But what I'm asking you is to please preserve the life of my son. Don't kill my son. I want to see my son again. And what David was saying, he's not like a parent that's like, make sure he comes back to me because I want to wring his neck. It wasn't anything like that. It was like, I hope I'm holding out hope for a relationship with him, even if he doesn't see it at this moment in time. And so he sends his army out there, sends Joab. Joab is the commander of David's army. He sends Joab out there. The thing, though, we must realize when it comes to Joab and his brother, Abishai, these guys live by a different rule and law and way of living. Right? They're like, David, you may forgive, God forgives, but I don't. They're like first rappers of their day. Like They're hard. They're all about it. And so they hear that word, but then they come, up, they come upon Absalom. And Absalom's out there. He's in a compromised position. His head kind of got like stuck in a tree somehow. 
And those guys, they don't spare his life. They just straight up, boom, spare him. Right through the center, he's dead. They kill him. So it was time when the, it came time for the army to return to David. And, you know, he's looking out and he's seeing them come and he's waiting for the news of what happened. And he receives the first word of like, yes, you know, he, he gets an update on the battle. He gets an update on the war. But his next question is, okay, now tell me about my son. And he hears that he's, he's died in battle. And this is where we pick up with David here. Heart broken for his son. So much so that he says, I wish it was me that died. I wish it was me. Right? He was holding out this hope for his son, and this, his son's death brings him now into this emotional down spiral. And it's not just him. Everybody's crying. Everybody's mourning. What should have been a day of victory seems like a loss. So that's what's going on. And then Joab there. Joab is standing there, and he's looking around like, wait a second. We just put our necks on the line for this dude, and he's crying, and like we are being humiliated after all we just did? This is the son who was pursuing your life, David. This is the son who was attacking us endlessly, who sent us on the run. How is it that we feel, or it feels like this is a loss? And so he has some strong words for David. He says, hey, get yourself together. Get yourself together, dude. Get back to the throne. Because if you don't, the next time one of your sons goes off, it'll be you and you alone. So David has to receive that word because the truth is he is the king. He has duties to fulfill. He has responsibilities to carry out. But there's no doubt he's carrying out his duties, his responsibilities with the heart of a father that's broken. You know, uh, I... My family, I feel like I come from a long line of rebellious people. And I would count myself among that in different periods of my life. But one of my uncles, one of my, uh, my mom's brother, my mom was one of eight. My mom uh, and, and my dad actually come from this country in South America called Guyana. And they were all able to immigrate to the United States except one of my mom's brothers. And my mom's brother who was unable to immigrate, was uh, uh, his name was Uncle Lloyd. And Uncle Lloyd, the reason why he wasn't able to come here was because he was, like, just steeped in addiction. Just, like, steeped. Like, uh, particularly when it came to alcohol, it just gripped his life. And so the alcoholism, the addiction was just, like, ruinous to the relationship between him and his mom, my grandmother. Things would get so nasty, right, as he saw my grandmother getting in the way of what he wanted. And he wanted to pursue wildlife, drinking, at all costs. And he would say terrible things. He would say things that would break my grandmother's heart, like, hey, grand, or yeah, well, it was his mom. He would say, mom, when you die, I wouldn't even think about going to your funeral. And so things continued that way. He'd re, he, he would have these like huge arguments and my grandmother's heart broken. And here's the thing, when it came to Uncle Lloyd's life, Right, he was actually prophetic in some ways, right? Because he died three months before my grandmother, never making it here, constantly in strife with his very own mother. All the while, my grandmother's heart breaking, right? Wanting a relationship with him, 
But because Uncle Lloyd said, no, no, Grandma, I want to do it my way, never able to. Here's the reality, right? Grandma's heart was broken. David's heart broken for his son Absalom. And reality is when sin grips our hearts, it breaks our father's heart. Our father's heart, father in heaven, his heart breaks when sin grips us and blinds us to his love, to his way. You know, the truth is, is that God loves you. If you're here in church today, that's not surprising news to you. You've probably heard that before. But I think what it's important for us to know when we say a statement like that is what does love actually do and mean? Right? Because I think often when it comes to how we think about love, right, it's, it basically says, hey, I have to tolerate anything or accept anything that you do or say. Right? But what love actually does is it wills, it in, intends, and it desires the good of the other person, not to your standard, but to God's standard. And so in love, sometimes we may have to do things like create boundaries between us and people. Right? Because people, in their, the fact that they're gripped by their sin, they're unable to see clearly sometimes. Right? And so for their good, for the good of their healing eventually, there must be boundaries sometimes that are set. Right? My uncle didn't want to live in my grandmother's boundaries, so he said, no. Right? And here's the thing, actually, though. When it comes to boundaries, right? when it comes to our relationship with God, It's usually not God. God has set the boundaries. It's us that say, God, I don't want you in the boundaries of my life. God, I don't want to do things your way. It was Absalom who said, I didn't want, I don't want your ways, David. I want to do it my way. And so we say the same to God. When we go to God and we say, God, your timing is too slow. God, your will and your way are just too outdated. I just want to do it my way. I just want to choose to be the leader of my own life. When I spend, when it comes to how I spend my time, I'm going to do it to whatever brings me the most comfort. I'm going to be the leader of my own life. We set the boundary and say, no, God, it's got to be my way. When it comes to how we, our our level of trust with God, we say, God, I can't be relying on you because it's just too unclear. It's just not clean enough. It's not efficient enough for me to trust you. So I'm going to do it my way. We set the boundaries and say, God, what I want to, what I want to happen is I want me to be here and I want you over there. We may take parts of our life and say, hey, God, I'm willing to give you this part, but every other part of my life, no, that's going to be within my control. And God says, no, all of life lived for him. He's not going to settle for 10 or 15 or 25% of you. Wants it all. And so we are the ones that often set the boundaries. And you know, the truth is God meets us in our sin. Right? Most of us here, we've experienced God meeting us in our sin. But his desire is not to leave us there. Right? Ultimately, we have to say in humility, God, I need you to lead me, not me to try to lead you. 
I want my will and my desires to be invaded by your will and your desires. Here's the reality. Your funeral will come before God's funeral. Those who continue to reject God and say, don't want you. The reality is, is that there is coming a day where the boundaries that you set up will be permanent. Right? Because we know that our God is on a mission in our world to fulfill justice, right? to bring justice and peace and reconciliation to our world, there will be a day where those boundary lines will be permanent. But here's what the Bible says about that day. It says that God moves in slowness towards it. And he doesn't move in slowness for slowness sake. He moves in slowness because he desires for you to turn from your rebellion and to turn towards him. It's not slow for slowness sake. It's out of his love for you. And if you ever need a reminder of how far he's willing to go, all we got to do is look at that cross. We look towards the cross of, uh, of where God put his own son to say, I want you here. I want you here. That's our reminder. So God's heart breaks when we're gripped by sin. David's heart broke for his son. He was gripped in his rebellion. But here's the thing. It wasn't just Absalom that was rejecting David as king. There were many others who were rejecting him as the rightful king. Pick up with me in 2 Samuel 19, verses 9 through 15. And it says this. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? And say to a master, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. Hmm. And so what we see here is that the king, King David, has a strong rebuke to those who are rejecting him as king. A strong rebuke towards them. He's got to remind them of who they are and who he is. So as a part of Absalom's rebellion, he basically said, I'm the king now. He took some very specific actions to say, I'm the new guy in town. David is old news. He's on the run. I'm here. I'm in charge. But here's the thing. It's not like Absalom had to like sway an unwilling people because here's what he was doing. This guy was clever. One of the, I feel like I've seen this over and over, but here's, here's what he's, he was doing. While David was in charge and like maybe dealing with all the high affairs and responsibilities of the kingdom, there would be people who would come to David and say like, hey, could you help me with disputes? And so David would serve as a judge, but maybe David was getting too busy and couldn't see all these people. And while that was happening, happening, Absalom would just be waiting outside the gate like, yeah, you know, if I was king, 
I'll give you four goats. You know what I mean? If I was king, everybody would get new sandals. Like. And so people were like warming up to him. He's like a man of the people. You know, they're like, man, this dude is like, you know, he hears us. He sees us, man. He's a real one. And so when he, got, when he became king, there was no doubt people were like, all right, here we go. You know, it's like the, the coworker you work with that's like, man, if I, was, if I was the boss, man, we'd be doing it this way. And then they become boss. You're like, they do everything the same exact way. You're like, you're not going to do nothing. You're not going to do nothing, please. And so Absalom had a lot of favor on his side. And so when it came time now to accept David, who's the rightful king, back as king, Judah, one of the tribes is like, I don't know. And this broke David's heart because David is from the tribe of Judah. And so David's like the first person in history to say, sometimes it's your own people. And he was right. Own people, man. And so he has to remind them who he is, who they are. He has to bring them back into their identity because they've lost their way. And so what does he say? You are my bone. You are my flesh. You know me. I know you. I am from your tribe. I'm not an outsider that's coming in to dominate you. You know who I am, and you know that I'm the king. And so David has to bring them back into an alignment because they're living out of the wrong truth and identity and rejecting him as king. You know, another one of my uh, rebel uncles is my uncle, my uncle Al. This is my dad's brother this time. Uh, my dad was, I, t- I was telling somebody in between service, my dad was one of 16. And so they were like, how? I was like, I don't know. I feel like my grandfather just went in the house and, and then babies were born. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Crazy. But one of my dad's uncle Al was one of my favorite uncles, man. He was just always like doing it, man. He was like, he lived in Manhattan. Um, he had a, man, a duplex in Manhattan. I was like, dang, like two apartments in one. That's crazy. Um, like he knew like supermodel, like he was just doing it, man. He was highly successful, just living that full wild bachelor life. I was like, man, it's so cool. And so, you know, I remember one day uh, I got a word from my dad. He told our family, he was like, actually, I got some bad news about Uncle Al. He's got brain cancer. And so we were like, oh, man, it's terrible. And so he couldn't work his job anymore. And he couldn't, like, really take care of himself. And so my dad was like, all right, I'll step in, and I'll do it. And so my dad would cook for him. He would care for him. He would bring him food and such. Uncle, I was like, man, I got to go see Ben Carson. He's the one that's caring for me. We're like, dang, like, that's, that's crazy, man. Like, you're going to the best of the best, I guess. Um, and it was just like, we, you know, my dad would just be helping him, helping him, helping him. And then so one day what happened was my dad was bringing food, and he went there. And when he came back home, he had the food with him. And so we were like, what? what? What happened? Did you just decide not to drop food off today? Like, that's terrible. But he said, no, no, I got to the apartment and it was cleared out. It was clean. It's like no one ever lived there. And so we were like, what in the world? Long story short, what happened was Uncle Al uh, didn't have brain cancer. Um, he just uh, decided to change his name, change his name to Nigel. Um, and he left the state and created a new identity and, like, basically uh, disregarded our family. And so in that, right, the family's, like, calling Uncle Al. And Uncle Al's got this new personality. He's speaking with a British accent. They're like, you're from Brooklyn. How is that possible? Come on. That's not you. 
And so, you know, they're trying to remind him, trying to remind him, but ex- getting exhausted. You know, and a lot of the family was like, you know what, just forget it. Let's forget it. If he wants to live his life out there, let him do it. And so a lot of people gave up on him, but my dad never did. My dad continued to reach out. My dad continued to say, hey, no, 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 like you are Alvin. You're not, uh, you're not Nigel. All right? You're not from London. You're not a bloke. Like, no, dude. And over time, what would happen is Uncle Al would start to like remember. It was like, yeah, you're right. I am Alvin. Yeah, you're right. And my dad would like, you know, my, my dad would start like out of that. My dad was able to like keep the relationship, preserve it to the point now where they're like back fully, back fully in relationship. But it took a lot of rebukes. It took a lot of my dad saying, no, you have a family. You have an identity. You are not, you didn't just pop up in the middle of some state. You have a family and identity that you belong to. You know, I asked my dad, why did you, what kept you doing that? And he said, that's my brother. No matter what happens, that's my brother. Couldn't just forget about him because he was family. And here's what Jesus wants us to hear. That there is a rebuke that we all must hear from Jesus that says, hey, there are ways, right, as a follower of me, that you have fallen out of alignment with my ways and the way of my kingdom. There's a rebuke that Jesus has for all of us that brings us into remembrance of who we are and how we are to live. Some of us, and the way that we express ourselves in our day-to-day lives shows that we've forgotten the family that we belong to. We need to hear Jesus say, no, 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 you are my bone and my flesh. When it comes to our money, right? I know we don't like to talk about money. It's an uncomfortable subject for many of us. But oftentimes it's uncomfortable because of how much value we ascribe to it in our, in our world, in our society. And so when it comes to our money, what we say is, no, no, no. Like, I can't be generous. I got to make sure I have as much as I have for myself. And when it comes time to give or someone asks, I'm not going to speak up. I can never be generous. I'm never at the point where I need to be where I can be generous for somebody else. And so we say, Jesus, you are my savior, but my bank account is going to be my comfort. The king's rebuke to you says this. You have a father who is a provider. If he provides for the birds of the air, how much more for you? You aren't a child wandering our earth all alone. You have a family you belong to. And here's the thing. Your father's a good father. He is a provider. You may not have all you want, but he will provide what you need. Remember your identity. Others of you, others of you, uh, uh, what had happens at times is you let the negativity of emotions reign over your heart. You've accepted the false king like Judah accepted a false king of Absalom. For some of us in our hearts, we've accepted false kings of sarcasm, of apathy, of unkindness, of a lack of gentleness, of all these negative sort of ways that we interact with people in our world. And maybe we think that if we could just go to those things, Right, if we just come off as uncaring and uh, disconnected as possible, the world will be a more comfortable, bearable place for us. And here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to hear. 
that when it comes to these things that the fruit that the Spirit of God wants to grow within us, these aren't optional parts of our faith. Right? Our, we, we should desire to be growing in kindness, to be growing in gentleness towards people. It could be that our kindness, right, could be a better testimony, a better witness to people, especially in this world where people are very unkind. You heard Julie say it in our tempi that people are lonely. Our kindness could be the way the Spirit of God is using us to soften our hearts so that people can receive the truth of Jesus. And here's the thing. I know when I say something like that, you say, well, I just don't feel it. Um, it doesn't feel like authentically myself. Well, here's the thing, guys. The goal of our faith in walking with Jesus is not to become more like ourselves. It's to become like him. It's to become more like him. And so we don't look to ourselves as the standard. We look to him. And we say, God, grow these things within me. I desire them. The king rebukes, rebukes our unkindness, our lack of gentleness. And he says, no, remember the kindness you've received from me. Remember what it means to grow to my image, not your own. And when the king rebukes, he's not rebuking to shame you into nothingness. No, he's calling you up and calling you into your identity. He's saying that his way, that the ways of his kingdom must be our A to Z. We don't live in his kingdom and then go to something else to supplement it. It's his way, his will. All the time. So there's, all, there's a rebuke for all of us to hear. But here's the thing. As King Jesus has a rebuke for us and King David rebukes Judah for not knowing who they are, what we don't see as we continue in our passage is an outright rejection. So we are going to go through chapter 19 And I'm going to bring you to three different episodes as David is confronting those who have wronged him directly. So first section is going to be verses 20 through 24. And the person who has come to David, his name is Shimei. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it sounds cool. So that's what I'm going to go with. Shimei. So it says in verse 20, for your servant knows that I have sinned. This is Shimei speaking. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Next person, Mephibosheth, in verse 24, says this. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, O O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. And then Mephibosheth would, or David, I should say, would go on um, to uh, say what he would do in response to Mephibosheth's claim here. 
And lastly, Judah, Judah, the people that we just read about who rejected the king, it said this in verse 41. Um, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing our king back? The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So three different episodes of people who had wronged David. And what we see in each one of these three images, these three pictures, people who have come to David, is that they are all undeserving recipients of the king's pardon. The king's pardon is extended to undeserving rebels. So the moment of truth has arrived for those who have wronged David. Right in my head, I grew up a wrestling fan, so I'm just thinking like the glass is breaking and Stone Cold's coming out and it's like (laughs) he's about to open up a can, you know? Yes. And so... The moment of truth has arrived. So the first person we see come to David is Shimei, or Shimei, whichever one you choose. Tomato, tomato, I think. (laughs) Shimei. Shimei comes to David, and what Shimei had done is when David was on the run and fleeing from Jerusalem because of his son, Shimei was there throwing rocks at him, throwing rocks at him and cursing him. And Joab was there when that was happening. He was with David. He's like, we're going to kill this guy, right? And David's like, no, God may have sent him. And so now he's come back. He knows he's in the wrong. He has to go to the king. And this time, Joab's brother's there. He's like, we're going to kill him, right? And David's like, what am I going to do with you guys? There are other solutions to sparing people, all right? Just know that. So he says, I'm the king. He's forgiven. The next is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, who David was under the impression that he had abandoned him when things got crazy. And so David is asking, hey, what happened, Mephibosheth? How you left me, dog? I thought you were going to ride, you know? And what happened was Mephibosheth says, no, I wanted to come with you, but my servant Ziba took my ride. He took my donkey. That's all I had. (laughs) And so David's like, all right, I don't know, because Ziba was with us when things got crazy and you weren't. So what I'm going to do is just I'm going to divide the land that I have set out uh, between you and him. And Mephibosheth's like, later on in the past, he's like, ah, oh, just let him have it, man. Like, let him have it all. He probably can't believe that his servant who has tricked him is going to make out in this, going to make out with some land. And then lastly, Judah, the group that rejected David as king. David has gone out of his way to ingratiate himself towards them, let them know that he desires them to accept him back as king. And that accept, that upsets everyone else. The rest of the tribes are like, why are you showing favor to them? Weren't we the ones, right, that wanted you back as king first? How is it that you're showing special favor to those guys? So all around, you see the king's pardon, the extension of his forgiveness doesn't come without some harsh critique some harsh opponents of the king's forgiveness. They can't believe that he would offer forgiveness to those people. 
I know many of you guys right now are watching that Jeffrey Dahmer show on Netflix. I know you're doing it for research purposes, and so we thank you for your service. I'm glad you're watching the Milwaukee Cannibal, and I don't have to. You tell me all about it or not. But, you know, the, the reality is with Dahmer, right, he, he committed to some unimaginable, horrible acts towards other human beings. When he was caught and brought to justice, the world rightfully rejoiced. But there, 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 are all, there is also the truth. If you've watched that, you saw what happened. Spoiler alert. Dahmer came to faith. Dahmer was baptized by all accounts. But he asked for forgiveness, and if that was the case, he was forgiven. Right? There's the reality that when you get to heaven and you're singing Promises by Maverick City, because you know we're going to be singing that in heaven. <laughs> you know we will. And you're singing, great is your faithfulness. And then you get to that break. Right? I put my faith, and you look to your right. There goes Jeffrey Dahmer. In heaven with you. Dahmer actually quoted from 1 Timothy, he quoted Paul, and he said, and in one of his hearings, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You may see Dahmer in heaven. You may see Chris Watts in heaven. Chris Watts, if you, are, if you aren't familiar with him and his story, what he did is he murdered his wife and his two young daughters because he was trying to hide an affair. You know, Chris Watts was recently interviewed about his faith, and he said this, I never knew I could have a relationship with God like I do now. It's like the amazing grace with all this, but I wish nobody had to pay any kind of price for this. Might see him in heaven. Here's the reality. I think... For many of us, it's easier to come to grips with that. We could say, all right, God, wow, can't believe you would believe, uh, forgive them, but all right. all right, they're out there. But what about the people closer to us? What about the people who have hurt us directly? Talking about the spouses who've been unfaithful. Talking about the friends who've betrayed us, the parents who've neglected us. The boss, abusive, cheated us. Boyfriend or girlfriend, I brought incredible pain in our lives. What about them? Would God's forgiveness be for them? Here's the scandalous nature about the gospel, we believe. The scandalous nature of the gospel is that God's forgiveness extends, yes, to those who are suffering and who have been hurt. Justice is for them. But it's also to the undeserving perpetrator of sin. Also for those who have done the unimaginable. I know it's a tough word for us because in our culture, in many ways, we live in a culture of unforgiveness. We live in a culture that says, if you forgive, let someone off the hook, you're weak. It's very much like Old Testament, kind of like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Funny how that works. And so there's no possible, there's no avenue for us in culture that says, 
hey, maybe forgiveness and God's grace and mercy are a better teacher than revenge and retribution. But here's the thing. God's forgiveness, the king's forgiveness, extends to the undeserving, right? But for us, there is no opportunity for us to live like Abishai and Joab and say, God forgives, but I don't. We must be people who forgive. And when I say forgive, what I'm not saying is we jump back into the relationship or the thing that has happened to us. We jump right back uh, into that space in the same way. But what I am saying is that what we say is we are going to absorb the wrong that's been done against us. We're going to absorb the pain of it, the uh, resentment, the bitterness, all that comes with how we've been sinned against. We're going to absorb that. And instead of seeking retribution and revenge for ourselves, we are going to lay that at the feet of Jesus and know that his justice is going to be way better than anything that we could ever do. And so I'm not saying, or, 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 or I understand that forgiveness is a process. I understand it may take time for us to get there. What I do want to make very clear, right, it says in me speaking, Scripture speaking, that we are mandated by the gospel to forgive. Mandated. If you're looking for the words of Jesus, he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. So how do we get there? I think King David was able to get there because ultimately at some level or another, he remembered the forgiveness that he received. Right? He remembered that he had committed the ultimately unimaginable thing versus David, versus Bathsheba and Uriah. He was forgiven. And so we, when we remember how much we've been forgiven, it softens our heart to be able to forgive others. And the truth of the matter is that all of us are in need of God's forgiveness. All of us, right, have sin in front of a perfect, righteous, and holy God. We've all been forgiven, but we all needed the forgiveness of God in Christ. And so the hope of the Dahmer and the Watts, it's not just a hope for them. That should be hope for us as well, because the same sin that's in them is in us as well. And so we need the king's forgiveness. And here's the thing. I'm not standing up here talking like someone who doesn't struggle with it. I struggle with this. I often feel it's so much easier for me to just write people off. And then not more than just write them off, uh, I just let bitterness, like it's easier for me to let bitterness and resentment and all the scenarios in my head just go on, it's like how I'm going to get them back. It's easy for me to get there. But what I realize when I'm there is that it's actually not bringing me fulfillment. It's actually not bringing me any joy. All it's letting happen is bitterness to destroy my heart. You know, Mandela said this as he was reflecting on his time leaving prison. He said this, as I walked out of the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Heard said, when we forgive, we release a prisoner and then realize that prisoner is us, ourselves. We must be people who forgive. Others of you today need to know that the king's forgiveness extends to you. 
that you have committed the unimaginable. You have committed the act of abuse. Maybe you saw yourself last week as John talked about David and Bathsheba as one, similar to David in that situation. What I want to make very clear to you is that the king is ready to offer forgiveness to you. But here's the thing. It's not going to be in the way, it's not going to be in an I'm sorry sort of way. Our culture has taught us to say I'm sorry, but not turn away from the things we've done wrong. It's not going to be in those old words. It has to be a new way. It has to be a new way. You must turn to the king for repentance. You must be like Shimei and Mephibosheth who didn't go running away. They ran towards the king and said, king, I need your forgiveness. And so when you run, to, run away from your sin, when you turn away from your rebellion, you repent and turn to Jesus, he is ready to extend forgiveness towards you. I want you to hear that very clearly. When you're ready to turn away from all the ways you're hurting someone or have hurt someone, when you turn towards the king, you can receive his pardon today. But it must be a pursuit towards Jesus. It must be a running towards him. It must say, I don't want to live in my old identity. I want you to give me a new identity. And when you do that, God will do just that. Turn to Jesus and receive the pardon. Don't excuse your sin. Don't ignore it. Turn to him, receive forgiveness, and allow him to give you a new identity. And what will happen is God's grace comes between you and whatever happened yesterday. God's grace will come between you and whatever your yesterdays were made up of. And so church, and this time with saying this. The world is shocked about many things that we believe at this point. They're shocked that we believe even in the idea of sin. Shocking. But here's what I would say. Let them be shocked that we believe in sin. In sin. But let them be more shocked that the people of God still believe in forgiveness, in repentance, in restoration, in renewal. And be shocked about that. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Amen. Now we're going to come to the table this morning. The table of forgiveness. It's a table that reminds us that we all needed the king's pardon. We all have fallen short of his glory. table that reminds us that the forgiveness of sin came by the way of Christ's body and his blood shed for us. That he is the, the perfect son of God that absorbed our sin and offered forgiveness by his blood. And so we come each week, week in, week out, we come all with hands out to receive him. Receive the forgiveness, receive the pardon that we all so desperately need. It allows us to live eternally in relationship with God. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition into our time of responding through worship. 
And I just pray as we sing out, we will remember the freedom that we've experienced because of Jesus, because of the forgiveness when we were undeserving rebels of him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the reminder, Lord, how much we need you and how hopeless we are. Lord, when we try to live in our own will, in our own way, God, when how hopeless we are when we're trapped in our sin. But here's the good news, God. You've created a new pathway. God, that you, Lord, have created a way, Lord, for us to experience forgiveness, Lord, to be given a new identity, God, and for our sin not to have the last word in our lives. And so I pray this morning, God, that this wouldn't just be an individual experience that we experience within ourselves, God, but to a world, we're in a world, Lord, that's so unforgiving in many ways. God, that we will be people of your kindness. We'll be people who share your forgiveness and people who let, God, the people that the world has given up on know that there is a will and there is a way that's found in you, Jesus. Lead us now as we sing and worship to you. We thank you for all you continue to do.